0: Hello and welcome to the City of Sales podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Barfoot. This is the podcast where I get to interview interesting and successful real estate people from Barfoot & Thompson in Auckland, New Zealand. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm fortunate to have as my guest, Andy Dye. For those of you who grew up watching too many home improvement TV shows like I did, You may remember Andy from his role as Handy Andy on the Mitre 10 Changing Rooms show. You may remember him uh, when he was a host on Radio Haraki or Classic Hits, uh, or maybe from uh, when he appeared on Celebrity Treasure Island. Andy's been with Buffett and Thompson since 2004, most most of those years as one of the top agents in the bays. Um, but more recently, since 2018, as the manager of the Ellerslie office. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andy Dye as much as I enjoyed recording it. So Andy, thanks very much for coming in and being my uh, podcast guest. I really appreciate it.
1: Stephen, absolute pleasure. Surprising that there's still relevance that I might be able to uh... To, to offer and, and add, but uh, no, it's great. Thank you for uh, thinking of me, and um, I'm happy to, uh, you know, help out wherever I can. Fantastic. At the time when I grew up, um, one of the TV
0: shows that I really uh, enjoyed watching was this thing called um, Mitre 10 Changing Rooms. <laughs> and um, That old chestnut. <laughs> and so there was this guy on the show, um, Handy Andy, and whenever I um, I meet you, Andy, I'm always thinking of Handy
1: Andy. Is is there some coincidence there? Well, what I will say, Stephen, is that that you dangerously puts you in a certain bracket. <laughs> so I, I'm glad Age, you're ages me. Yeah, yeah I'm exactly. glad you're comfortable with that, because I certainly don't have any millennials coming up and and uh, saying "g'day" or pointing the finger. So, uh, um, yes, although you've got a good memory. Uh, which is one thing, because I certainly don't wander around these days in a handy handy t shirt and, and a penny and a, and a hammer swinging from my belt, so uh, uh, but, but yeah, so I have to put my hand up and own up that one, so that was uh oh, it was a neat time, it was a neat stage of my life and and but but yeah, I no, knocked out a few years of doing that, so uh great experience, yeah, yeah, so for all of those um younger people out
0: there who uh you know maybe watch the block. Is it now? Yeah, um, yeah. So before the block, there was Motor 10 Changing Rooms, and um, the star of that show is is my guest today.
1: Well, let, let, me, let me reword that slightly. So, <laughs> so Kerry Smith, if you've got a good memory, Kerry, Kerry Smith, who was on Gloss many years ago and did lots of other uh, shows, uh, she was uh, the main presenter who did all the links and it was her baby and I was uh, her right-hand man. Um, so Kerry and I were on every episode and we had different designers that would come and go each week. So, I mean, that's uh, different people got their breaks and that. There was, um, oh, Donald Sunderland. Um, it was on that Neil uh, Sally Ridge. That's where she got her start into, wow. into media. I uh, yeah. was as a designer on changing rooms. Yeah. Um, but I, it, it was the first of those DIY shows that came out, so it was literally right at the beginning or possibly the second, because the first one we might talk about a bit later, which is why I ended up uh, having an opportunity on Changing Rooms, but um, yeah, that started off a bit of a trend, um, <laughs> and, then, uh, and now we have to uh, endure with Mark Richardson and the block, so... <laughs> yeah that set the standard right oh completely that that was that was what that was what kicked it all off nowadays with the block obviously they're doing uh you know i suppose well-built properties back in my day in changing rooms the first time the diy really hit the screens we were making a tv show so we're knocking out an episode in a weekend and uh I did get a little bit of ridicule for potentially the quality of work (laughs) that was left in our wake. (laughs) But no, it was great. It was good fun, which is what it was all about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the
0: good thing, or, you know, depending on how you look at it, I suppose, because uh, I was trying to find some of those episodes uh, yesterday when I was doing some research before we talked, yeah. uh, is that um, you know you can't find them anywhere, so nobody's ever going to be able to you know comment
1: now on the on the quality or not of that <laughs> work. <laughs> yeah, no, it predated YouTube, so I'm quite happy about that. Yeah, Um, yeah. but if you ever uh, feel an inkling to go back to the '90s, you're welcome to come over. I've got a whole box of VHSs in the cupboard. (laughs) You can you can go through the episodes. There's a fair few of them. Um, I think we got over 100 episodes. So, so yeah, we we gave it a good good nudge at the time. And you still have the technology to play those uh, those tapes? No. No, no, that's why they that haven't been digitised. <laughs> um, I don't know if we have a VHS anymore, but um, for the younger listening audience, do we need to tell them what a VHS is? <laughs> yes,
0: back in the history books, that stuff, isn't it? Mm. And you were involved in um, a variety club event yep. or two. Yep. And I hear I hear a rumour there might have been
1: a bit of an incident uh, <laughs> when you were in Arrowtown. <laughs> there's, all, there's always an incident. Yeah, I probably... Blame Simon Dello for that because I think he got me involved in uh, the Variety Club. And um, if you can think back, if if you've ever seen crazy looking cars and fire trucks, old school fire trucks, all driving around in big convoy in New Zealand, that would more likely have been uh, the Variety Bash, and that has happened for many many years. So I was fortunate enough to go on a couple of bashes uh, over the years back in the day when I was. Uh, sort of in the fold in TVNZ. And uh, we would go around the country in convoy, and I was on the fire truck from Rainbow's End, and I found myself in Arrowtown. And when when we arrive into a little town and you, you all jump out of the, the vehicle that you're in, and we're all armed with water pistols, and, of course, you accost the locals and see if you can raise some money <laughs> for um Variety Club, you know, so uh why not? Great cause. So this lady wasn't uh, forthcoming with any uh, coins. so I think I I shot the water pistol sort of just across her her you know left shoulder and I might have clipped her. I might have <laughs> <laughs> unintentionally. <laughs> unintentionally. Yeah, it was just uh, it was merely a bit of a threat, but I think uh, she might have got a, got a couple of drops. So she proceeded to tackle me to the ground and beat the living daylights out of me (laughs) while while everyone back in the fire truck were looking and laughing. And um, she had a bag or something, she was swinging it and whacking me. And so um, I managed to get out and get back to the safety of the truck. But um, I'll never forget Arrowtown. Yeah. 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 I can yeah. imagine that'll be imprinted on your on your brain. Yeah. And um Leanne Clark, do you remember her? She was in on Fair Go for yeah, many yeah, years. Yeah, of course. Leanne Clark. So I think she was uh she was on the and the fire truck with me. She's was working at Rainbow's End at the time and so but she didn't help. So <laughs> yeah, she she left left me to take it. No, it's <laughs> it good fun. I need, need to be part of that and to see the country and you know experience small towns. Yeah, it's a great Mm cause. So support, Mm. support Variety Club wherever you are. Wherever you can.
0: No, it's um, bringing back, uh, you know, a bit of a memory for me too. I had a, a, a water p- pistol incident in my youth. <laughs> <laughs> <Did> you? <laughs> I'm not sure if I should tell this story. <laughs> well, you
1: can't not now. <laughs> well, I want to. I want to see if you end up on the ground being beaten to a pulp well, by it was a, a local well, lady.
0: Well, it was a close <laughs> thing actually. Um, being a king's boy back in the day, uh, you know, a friend of mine, you know, had quite a nice car that we, you know, used to. Drive around in, and um, we were at a gas station, and um, there were some guys just across filling up at the same time. Yeah, and um, as I was sitting there in the car, you know, my friend was off to pay, and um, you know, he was giving us a bit of stick about you know driving Mummy's car and all the rest yeah. of it. And um, I, I wasn't that happy about that. <laughs> it's probably deserved. You, probably it might, deserved. Have been, it might have been <laughs> deserved anyway. And um, so, just as we were driving off, I happened to have a water pistol in my hand. And um, I just took a shot out the window as we were driving off. Yeah, yeah. And it was a beautiful thing. You can imagine I got this guy straight in the face <laughs> from across the aisle. <laughs> it's like all in slow motion. All in slow motion. Anyway, uh, they took off and started yeah. chasing us <laughs> and chased us over half of Auckland. We managed to, you know, kind of make an escape. But um, it, could, it
1: could have ended up like your Arrowtown story. Yeah. Fortunately, mother's car had enough pep. <laughs> yeah, <You did. laughs> Pedal to the metal. Oh, no, no, the, the dangerous things can happen to us and we survive to tell the tale. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's all life.
0: Before the days of um Mitre 10 changing rooms and your other TV and so on, what was your childhood like?
1: Well, it was great. I mean, um, I uh, spent the first three years in a place that was at the time called Tikawata, now it's teakofeter, so uh, mm-hmm. um, I think my mum struggles to make that transition. But uh, um, and I was on a on a dairy farm. Dad was a share milker, and uh, so the first few years I was running around in gumboots uh, uh, with cows around everywhere. And then um, we travelled around New Zealand in the North Island a bit with Dad's work, where he was a rep for um, an Amaphos fertilizer company. So I had a really good childhood. I got involved in surf lifesaving. There was mum and dad had a batch. And the families, the Dyes, um, who were originally from uh, Cow Copper Copper, which is up by Helensville, had uh, a batch at Red Beach, which the Dyes' house was one of the first houses that were ever built in Red Beach. And so we had that batch. And so I joined the surf club when I was a nipper. So from eight right through to early twenties. I was heavily involved in surf lifesaving and so that's that was a really nice element so child childhood was great lots of opportunity but uh mum and dad moved from taradale napier up to auckland to kumu kiwi fruit orchard when i was about 12 just so that the kids you know had opportunities mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. just a normal normal kiwi upbringing and surf lifesaving and athletics you know, were real drivers for me where I could really test myself. For those
0: of us who aren't uh, familiar with surf lifesaving, what is a nipper?
1: A nipper? Oh, yeah. So, do you not watch Bondi Rescue? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> sure, they have nippers running around there. So in surf lifesaving, obviously, when you're at, at an age, you can get your bronze medallion and you can do uh, patrolling. Mm-hmm. So you'll sit there and you patrol between the flags um, but a, a lifeguard will start off life as a nipper, so a seven or eight-year-old coming into it. So like just like junior sport for rugby or soccer. Okay. Um, so it's just the entry point for uh, budding, patrolling lifeguards, and you learn all the ropes of surf lifesaving. So swimming, water sports, all the different craft and competitions, rescue, resus, all those elements. So by the time I was 14, I think I was patrolling and uh, actually having some responsibility But wasn't have been involved in several rescues. So that's relatively grounding. Lots of preventative rescues, so moving people away and out of rips and things like that. Well, certainly involved in. So uh, so what's the the most kind of, uh, what's the biggest rescue
0: you've been involved in?
1: So one that didn't end up so well, um, but life changing. I was a junior. We're up at Waipu Cove for a big carnival. Uh, I was competing for my club. Uh, for Red Beach, and I was racing boats and all sorts of things. And as a lunch break, and myself and another lifeguard, Mark Flavel, I don't even remember his name, um, went into the dairy to get some lunch. And the bay around the corner, mm. can you believe it or not, it had no lifeguards there. There were hundreds of lifeguards competing uh, at Waipu Cove. Um, a phone call came in, and someone uh, was in trouble around the corner. Mark and I jumped into a vehicle, um, grabbed a, some rescue equipment, defib, I think at the time or what whatever we had at the time. And I remember I was a junior, so I would have been mm, 16, mm. something like that, and got around there and they'd pulled a man out of the surf and he was on the sand, family all around, and Mark and I had to um, carry out resus. And it actually gives me sort of goosebumps when I even think about it now. Just one of those experiences. So we spent 30 minutes trying to resus um, this person, but he had had a, a heart attack in mm. the water. And so he wasn't coming back. But we hung in there and the paramedics came. Ambulance came about 30 minutes later. And it's interesting, having this chat is fantastic. But, and I hadn't even thought of this situation and something that happened mm. and occurred in your life. But you think, you know, you start talking, you think oh, all these different experiences that you had. Wow. And uh, at 16, that must have been pretty traumatic. It, it was. Mm. There was a little article in the paper that came out the following day about it because um, someone had lost lost their life. Um, and it, and it, it was actually. It took a little bit of just, just working through it. And the memory I have is of the family around me at the time asking me, is it okay, uh, what's happening? Mm. And it was consoling them at the time that you were Literally, the two of us were carrying out resus. You know, we've got one on compression and one on breaths, and 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 thirty minutes is a long time to have that situation. That a, happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was probably quite a moment, really. I suppose where I, all of a sudden, you know, I needed to grow up. Yeah, or, or, or I grew up a bit that day. So that's that would probably be the you know the most uh, memorable experience that i had in surf Life Saving. there's others i mean we went to australia and went on a tour and you know competed as a safer uh, one national titles um and sprint and canoe and rescue four man rescue um events competed for auckland in surf Life Saving as a junior um got to wear the blue but yeah that that experience up by waipu yeah probably tops it all yeah yeah it reminds me um Actually, uh, a similar experience from
0: my childhood. I can't remember what age I was maybe around 10, um, Henry and I were playing on the, um, the island at mm. uh, Island Bay Road at the bottom of the uh, street, and um, there was a kid there who, who had kind of climbed up the hill, or one of you know uh, a um, uh, kind of a rock face, mm. I suppose, and um, he fell and then kind of bounced off the path and then landed in the water and managed to knock himself out. Mm. On the way down, and so here he was, floating face down in the water. So um, Henry and I ran and grabbed Judy, um, Kerry's mum, who was a doctor, and so and obviously a good swimmer, was able to drag this kid out of the water and perform CPR on him, and and he was fine. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was quite a um, mm. you know at the time quite a traumatic and
1: it's experience. So, touch, so touch and go. And mm. often can swing both ways, you know, you know. Well, if Judy hadn't been there, you know, it yeah. could
0: have turned out very yeah. differently. Yeah.
1: The things that you remember, though, they sort of plant in your memory, mm. and um, yeah, because it makes us who we are, I suppose. Those experiences—that's right. Yeah. 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 What did you imagine yourself being when you grew up? oh <laughs> uh, when I when I was thirteen, I started playing the guitar. Actually, you go back a couple of years prior to that, and um. Mum made me learn the violin when I was about ten, so I got. <laughs> I, I didn't warm to it. Um, the orchestra and Choral Intermediate wasn't my <laughs> most favourite place, um, but bless her heart, um, it was good. gave me some grounding, and I knew figured out what a treble clef was. So, right, right. Um, so got an introduction to music, and then uh, we moved to Kumu and Auckland, and. So I'd left the violin behind and started the trumpet when I was 13. When I went to high school, that only lasted about four months because I couldn't stand the noise, and then started on the guitar. And I've been playing guitar my whole life since I was 13, and um, 14, started a band, and, and uh, there's whole stories going down that avenue. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if it was right, right at the moment, but I think that was an introduction to me that I really need to be doing things that I love, not just getting by, not, you know, I was always pushing myself in different areas, whether it was athletics um, or surf lifesaving or or a different sport that I was doing. And and I think the same thing then just transitioned into what I would do with my life. And, you know, whatever it was, I needed to be passionate about it and, yeah. and um, know that, that I was really enjoying it. And, and that was felt that there's always options out there and you don't have to just, just do what the man tells you, you know, you go and sort of find your dream. I didn't really have aspirations going, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer or I want to be, you know, a dairy owner or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It was more of just a, 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 this is the type of life that I'm, I'm drawn to where I just do for a living what I would do for free as a hobby. And um, I was fortunate enough to kind of milk that for a decade or two, <laughs> a decade or so. And, and even to this day. Because I just love what I do. Yeah, so, yeah you know, fantastic. You know, so really, just just follow your passions. You follow your passions completely. Yeah, yeah I love Ab- that absolutely. Mm. And, uh, and 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 you don't know where that's going to lead you. You don't know what path it is. And mm. uh, as we go through different things, chatting about it, it's funny. I keep thinking about other things that I did in my life, and it it's all about that. It's just following my passions and um, having a good time doing it. And you don't feel as though you're working a day in your life. So. Yeah, no, it wasn't just one thing. It was more of a, just a sort of an overall ethos or something. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And so being a father now, I
1: understand that you have more than one child. Is that right? Yes, I have more than one child. (laughs) And I still am married to the same woman. (laughs) Uh, No, we have five children, um, but we just felt that, look, if we're fortunate enough, it would be quite neat to have a pretty reasonably good-sized family. And, just left the gate to the paddock open <laughs> and uh, ended up with three boys and two girls. Yeah. We just, um, we just really family oriented and, and we're, we're just a really, it's a neat unit, you know, like going through recent times where we were locked down uh, was an amazing time for the family. We got to really spend time together and fantastic. You know, if someone gets sick of someone, they've got someone else to play with. So mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm very, very blessed to have a wonderful family. Yeah. And how does your kind of
0: philosophy of following your passions, how does that, I mean, does that something that you're passing on to
1: your kids? Absolutely. But then there is also the, the, Old school sensible brain that kicks in, like probably (laughs) my dad at the time. You know, so what do you want to run off and be in a band for? You know, Andrew. um, You know, and Mum used to say, "Get a trade, get a trade." Mm -hmm. You know, because I I didn't go to uni, and and uh, that's where I did my trade certificate in cabinet making, actually. So for my kids, yeah, you know, like Braden, the oldest, is the first one that we're thinking about university, his career, and where he wants to go, and what he's into, and with all of them we talk about it, but he's passionate with music production at the moment. So you you encourage it, you nurture it, but you try and be armed with maybe or equipped with a couple of things, your passion and then maybe your fallback because right. my mum you know, wanted me to have the fallback, which was a trade. So uh, I, I think I approach it with the same, but absolutely encourage their passion. I mean, in your case –
0: I guess it worked out well because you were an aspiring actor, um, but arguably you wouldn't have got that uh, big part unless you had also been uh, had that trade.
1: Yeah, well, that was well that changing rooms, which you come back to because it's probably the one that people of that era or may recognise that show. Mm -hmm. Um, And having a trade on my CV when I had an agent and shopping around for acting roles or TV commercials or, or, or the, the like, that gave me the opportunity for the TVNZ TV show New Zealand Living. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the step in the door in regards to presenting. But I was never a, what I wouldn't call myself an aspiring actor that was destined for success. <laughs> <laughs> I was an aspiring actor giving it a crack because I like to give things a go that I'm passionate about but I don't think acting was my forte. I think I was better uh, without the script. I was better just as me mm-hmm. and just being mm-hmm. myself. And I, and I think I'm probably to this day, you know, you just rely on your gut and just being yourself, you know, just sitting here talking about things that you've done, you know, can for sometimes be a little bit cringe, but <laughs> also, you know, you just, you, you're not hiding behind anyone else. You're just being yourself. You know, and usually you shouldn't, you can't go wrong. And so you mentioned that, um, well, you started off with the violin and then the trumpet, but
0: then I I understand that it kind of progressed from there in terms of your music career.
1: Yeah, it did. So I I never protested being a famous musician in New Zealand. That wasn't, that wasn't. (laughs) However, we did win the Battle of the Bands in 1991, and uh, we had a band decision. I'm going ahead of it. But we had a band decision right then. Do we do covers? Do we play in bars and clubs and corporate gigs and really just enjoy the music but then have a day job? Uh, Or do we solely do original music, try and get on the radio Mm -hmm. and go down that hard slog? And we decided to um, do the covers and just really enjoy the music for what it is and do other things. And so that just kept the door open for lots of other things. Uh, But yeah, I was 14. I started a band at school with a mate called Clark, who was a drummer, and we would practice at his mum's place every Wednesday, all self-driven. So mum and dad weren't really probably wondering what I was up to. But, um, you know, like nowadays, I really try and encourage my kids to play music. Sort of back then, it was just something that I just was passionate about so we played in the in the rock quests and the and school and won a couple of those battle of the bands and just had a heap of fun as adolescents and fantastic by the time i was 18 we did our first uh paid gig at a soccer club somewhere out west i can't quite remember i'll be reminded of it and uh i got a couple of old photos of that so we we're 18 year olds playing our first gig and Within a couple of years from then, we were in town in the city playing professionally two, three nights a week. Uh, and opened different clubs. There was a bar called the Podium over at the Pominamu on the North Shore. Yeah, of course I remember uh, that. Kevin Swass was was running it in those mm. days and there's a podium. And so we our band was called Switch or The Switch. So if you were in the nightclub scene or going out to bars and clubs. And then throughout the 90s, you may remember the switch. Mm-hmm. Um, so we opened that there for six months. And then Park in the Bar was another establishment uh, sort of just around the corner from support centre in Barford and Thompson, actually. Yeah, yeah, just, uh, just down below, yeah. Yeah, just down below. So back in the 90s, we were, uh, Oh, we, I remember going in there. And this is, um, I suppose this is just how you're wired. I remember, it was probably the first taste of managing really and Mm -hmm. taking control and organizing and having a plan and wanting to you know create and make it happen going in there and talking to the manager at the time uh, that they need live music in a parking bar and this is a established bar in Auckland um, already with clientele and here I am you know with the drummer trying to convince the manager that you need us and you actually need proper live music Um, and we were there for two years And was a resident band, uh, Parking the Bar, yeah, for two years. And then started doing circuits around New Zealand um, because of that. Just through having the, you know, I suppose the confidence and the the drive and gumption to (laughs) go and ask the question. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, And great experiences through that. So, yeah, so music has been a part of my life right through, yeah. Your first um,
0: experience of door knocking turned out quite well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't that work in real estate? (laughs) Yeah, 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 you're right, exactly right. Door knocking.
0: Um, (laughs) And I understand that um, you had quite a famous kind of uh, guest uh, artist
1: at at one point while, while you were there. Yeah, well, the time we were at Park and the Bar... I mean, look, this is small fry to I think there's other people within our company that are established musicians that would tell many amazing more stories than I would about people that they know in, in the industry. Um, but it was kind of our moment where we got to connect with someone famous. And um, there's a movie, if you remember, back in the 90s, uh, it was a Patrick Swayze movie called mm-hmm. Roadhouse. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was a bar in uh, I think probably on Route 66 somewhere in, uh, in the States and the the musician that was on the bar, uh, sorry, in playing in the bar at the time was a guy called Jeff Healy, and he was a blind guitarist singer from Canada. So at the time he was pretty famous and he had redone While My G- Guitar Gently Weeps, mm-hmm. um, uh, the George Harrison song, and so he had a hit with that and a couple of others. So he was in Auckland to play a big gig the night following, and he came into park in the bar and we recognised him. And again... Oh, Andy went and did some door knocking <laughs> <laughs> and uh, accosted him and his minor up at the bar and asked whether he would come and play with the band, the switch up on stage, which I got flatly refused initially and mm. had to have a couple more goes to try and talk him into it. And, um, and eventually I said, Well, look, I'll leave a, my guitar on a seat in the middle of the stage. And if you would like to come on up and we'll, you know, you're welcome to play. So I did that. So I planted the seed, filled the <laughs> pipe, you know, prospecting, and uh, he did. Came on up and played for an hour with us. And uh, someone had rung the radio stations, and it was all go because uh, Fort Street was jammed with cars, all stopped. People standing on the roofs of their cars trying to watch through the windows of parking the bar, Chief Healy playing just a, you know, a random gig with a local bar uh, band. Wow. wow. So it was but, pretty cool, yeah, That it was, must have been quite the scene, mm. kind of like that uh, the
0: u two video. what's that song that?
1: uh where the streets have no name the streets maybe, have they? no name, yeah where they're playing on the rooftop mm. yeah, yeah they are and they stop yeah. they stop everyone and the uh we didn't quite have the police and the uh and the the people management, I think we had probably a thousand people all <laughs> packed in the park in the barn on the street, but um yeah, it's funny, uh, you know I suppose doing things like following your passion for me certainly music, there's been many situations where uh, I wouldn't have had those neat opportunities had you not followed a passion and and got involved with something and put yourself out there.
0: So there was uh, kind of a you know the first maybe clues there that you were you know you were destined to be involved in real estate <laughs>
1: <laughs> with your your you know your door knocking and your and your negotiating skills there. And funny, you think, I remember way back, I started real estate in 2004. I uh, hadn't sold, I thought that I hadn't sold a thing in my life. Mm-hmm. You know? So I remember with the manager having an interview, thinking about a career change into real estate, and I'm sitting there saying it, I haven't sold a thing in my life. But this this is what I bring to the table and this is how I see things. And But the reality is, is if you actually dig back, you have. Absolutely. You know, you just don't really know it or, or the product's different. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So you were involved in uh, this show called Celebrity
1: Treasure Island. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so um, I, I know everyone knows Murray Smith, don't they, and Barford and Thompson is the auctioneer? I'm sure that yeah. uh, if you don't know who Murray Smith is, mm. yeah. So that name's... Um, infamous, so he's he is probably the one. If so, have you ever asked, you know, does anyone come up and say anything to you about your past or anything? He just loves it. He reminds me all the time that I was on Celebrity Treasure Island to the point where I know what he's trying to get at. Now, it's it's a bit of fun, but yes, I'll put my hand up to that one. Sorry about that. Yeah, um, this is the first, the first adventure I think that TVNZ had into putting um people that were. And broadcasting, I, I I refrain from saying celebrities because it's just little old New Zealand, and mm-hmm. you know. Um, but uh, yeah, that that test they did of sticking us on an island and not feeding us for ten days was was a pretty crazy experience, actually. You know, the fact that they would just not feed you for ten days—that well, I think when you when you got kicked off, because when you you know, like after two or three days, we're starting to lose people through the competition and. Someone will get booted off and you get all the way to the end. So I made it right through to the last day, so I got through to the last four, which was started at the beginning of the last day. Mm-hmm. so if you were booted off three or four days in, it wasn't so bad because oh, you see you've, you've only done that you was your consolation you got to <laughs> eat <laughs> well, you, went, you, you went back to uh, to the hotel at Nandy or something and um, and got a big feed and right. all that happened right. stayed the night and got on a plane and went home. Um, but for the rest of us. I mean, I think the way for them to get reactions out of people that were um, not normally giving their own reactions, you know, they might be actors or sports people, and so they're not really sort of opening themselves up. So I think the way the production company got around that to see these so-called celebrities actually, you know, see the real good oil and what they're like when Mm -hmm. they're under pressure um, was basically to starve us, so... So where on those TV shows you could see that we weren't uh, eating and you might be thinking, oh, they're having something behind the scenes, Um, certainly wasn't the case. So um, I remember Julie Christie from Touchdown at the time was the one driving that. I think she came out on a helicopter one day and several days in, And we're standing there on the beach, and I'm just chatting to her, and a little crab goes past, and I pick it up, and I eat it in front of her. (laughs) And she's, like, horrified. And it's like, well, Julie, I haven't eaten for five days. Wow. You know, so, um, you know, it it was just a crazy time. It was a heap of fun, but... It was pretty testing. Well, maybe that's a technique I
0: could use for my podcast, you know, just to <laughs> ensure people don't eat for a few days before they come on. and We'll, you know, we'll have a far more interesting conversation. Well, you could do.
1: You could do. That's if they stay awake.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, not this time, please. <laughs> so on that show, one of the kind of memorable moments from that was a negotiation that you that you had to have with uh, Trent Bray, I think it was, the swimmer,
1: right? hmm mm. So there was the two teams. So I was in one team with I think Sally Ridge was on my team. Um, I have to think of all the names now. Coxie was on the other team, and Trent was on there, and uh, a couple of All Blacks I think were floating around. And yeah, the, I think there was a there was a meeting. They had these call these meetings, and the two teams sit sort of across from each other and puff their chests out and TV try and you know, embellish the whole thing. Uh, and there was a negotiation that had to take place, I think, around food stocks and fish hooks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, real first world problems. <laughs> um, probably third world, really. But, uh, and uh, so, yeah, so that was the time where I had to really dig in. So I got thrust forward from my team, selected to go and negotiate on our behalf. And uh, so I dug my toes in and I think, Although these don't live in YouTube land, you know, so you can't go and watch them, thank goodness. Um, I think my kids dragged these episodes out about a year ago and watched mm-hmm. them all. They just thought it was hilarious. Um, so I did see this episode about a year back. And, yeah, it was definitely like negotiating the sale of a property. However, it was fish hooks and flour, I think. <laughs> and I understand that you prevailed in that negotiation. I did. I was pretty tough, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I cottoned on to that trick of just say less, you know, you say your bit and then you just zip it. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, just thinking about it now, how many times that happens when you're negotiating in real estate, you know, because people can say too much. Yes. You know, so I, I said my bit about the fish hooks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you need to give us more or less or whatever it was. And then I just zipped it and I just outsteered him for five minutes. Wow. Yeah, it was good fun. Just let the silence do the work. Oh, it's riveting stuff. Riveting <laughs> stuff, Stephen. It was yeah, I don't do not sure if it was a riveting ratings. Who knows? But um oh, I mean it's just fun to be involved with those sorts of things, so things to experience that you know, not everyone gets to do or so um, yeah. So it was maybe another little pointer that you
0: were, you know, you were going to be, uh, you know, you were destined for real estate. Oh, poss- possibly,
1: yeah. You're you're adding to the toolbox all along the way, and you don't. Eventually, you might end up having to draw on it, yeah, yeah. at a point later on down the track. And say, so
0: how did you get started in real estate, or what gave you the idea to go into real estate?
1: I was looking for something. I was early thirties, looking for something with more security. Uh, a role that I could grow in, a role that had opportunity. Ideally, it would be great if there was no ceiling. So rather than working as an employee where, you know, there were limitations, you know, I was looking more at either starting a business, uh, something that I could throw myself in, um, something that provided security for my family to come. I think I had early 30s. I got, I was married, got married in 02. And, back going back into the 90s uh from music and acting and tv uh, i also found myself into the industry of radio and worked for radio Howraki initially and classic hits for a few years mm-hmm. and actually at that point in time thought that that would be the career path that i would take just loved it and so i would not only be having my own radio show, but you'd be producing it and you're running the desk and you're taking the calls and you're, you know, you're stopping and starting the music and you're, you you have production values, all these wow. things that I really so, love. So, they're, they're, so, you're kind of doing that by yourself, are you? Yeah. So, all the production side of it. So, I wouldn't on air, I wouldn't have a producer with me. You are producing your show and you're being creative as well. And you're a step ahead because music's going to stop. Voice breaks are going to come up. What are you talking about? So you're planning. So you're running. You're running the mothership basically for your time slot. Wow! Uh, and just loved radio, and I had wonderful experiences. I interviewed some incredible people. I used to do a, a, a show called Desert Island Discs on classic hits at nights, and interviewed people like Tom Jones and Phil Collins, and mm-hmm. you know actors from Hollywood. And so I, I thought radio was actually my career with the trappings of all these other broadcasting things that sort of would go along with it. But what happened in radio um, back in the day with the radio network I started in Howraki? a new program director comes in and decides just to get the broom out and sweep clean, you know, the people because of whatever change that they're looking for, so personnel change on air. So the morning pirates were moved, you know, someone else was moved. All of a sudden my job at that time in Howraki was weekends and the rock van driver, so I'd do voice breaks into the, the morning show with the Morning Pirates. Um, so all of a sudden you find, oh, I haven't got a job in radio. Wow. So I go, where else in the radio network possibly could I go? And then I I found a role in Classic Hits, and I was there for a few years. And, and then again, same thing happens. In fact, Kerry Smith, who I was with on Changing Rooms, was in the booth next to me, so she would. She was on Easy Listening Eye mm-hmm. at the time, if you recall back yeah, in the 90s, Easy yeah, yeah, Listening that. Eye. And so she was the breakfast host on that. So she was working. Pete Sinclair was in there at the time. Oh, yeah, Pete yeah, yeah. yeah, So all these people I was sort of rubbing shoulders with, it was a really neat environment. But um, I, I'm glad I don't remember the name of the program director that came along, but um, ratings came out, you know, the classic hits at the time might have dropped a little bit. And I might have dropped a little bit and all of a sudden someone's brilliant idea of getting a broom out and just sweeping the decks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, regardless, uh, there was no longevity in radio that I felt would be able to give me security and potentially having a family. I had hopes of maybe having a, you know, good sized family and mm-hmm. providing for them. And and so I, I so even though it was a, a bit of a struggle because I love radio, it's just, so much fun! I actually got to go to Dunedin and did the breakfast show for Classic Hits in Dunedin for a year. That was an amazing experience. Um, I was on air when the Twin Towers were hit, you know. Wow. So um, that was uh, an unbelievable day. And I'm mm. I'm on live breakfast radio when that happens, you know. So uh, great times, great career ahead, hopefully. And then someone comes through and sweeps the decks clear of the online. Um, talent uh, and uh, so then you're going well, where else can I go and that's why I went to Dunedin for a period came back came and did a little bit of freelance radio again and some drive shows um, but then I was looking for something more stable so there, there I get back to that story of how did you start real estate or why did you start real estate and I knew a person who was at a rival company who had started who was mm-hmm. raving about it I was actually in St. Heliers. So I went and met that person, and then I thought, well, if I'm going to start in real estate, I'd better talk to the people who have the biggest share in Auckland mm-hmm. and have the best reputation. Um, so I contacted one of the local branches and uh, had an interview, and we sat down and basically talked about music and other things and life things. Rather than real estate, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. So that
0: was Andy McDonald.
1: That was, was it? and and because he's into his music as well. That's right. Yeah, so absolutely. he was he was a bass player for many years back, probably more so in the eighties, late seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. Hope I've got that right, Andy, uh, uh, with a band called Street Talk, and he used to play with Hammond Gamble, who was a famous name, right, uh, back in the day, and so Andy McDonald was a, a musician that had found his way into real estate. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, well, you know, I've got that, haven't sold anything before, didn't realise that I actually had, but they were in other forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just connected and uh, where well, I went. And I got a laptop and a phone and a car and, you know, and business insurance for my car. So <laughs> you have an accident and that's all you need. And that's, I think, what I really liked about it. And then, You can make of it what you can make of it. It's all all up Um, to you. mm. How did it go? Did you manage to find a listing to get yourself started? I probably gave myself 12 months. Uh, I treated it like this is my apprenticeship and felt as though that I had the reserves to manage 12 months of not being paid, which was fortunate, but I'd worked hard up until that point in my Mm. And my career in different areas. And I really felt strongly that I could do this. Uh, my wife, was she my girlfriend at the time? No, wife Verity was working. And so we were together. And so I had that support as well. And I had, I think I realized early on the importance of the database and the network. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And my contacts. So I was always entrepreneurial and self motivated. And Driven to succeed still wasn't easy, um, but I made friends in the branch, tried to make connections, and tried to be that helpful, useful person that people would be comfortable working with. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think my first key listing was with Kathy Bauer, who uh Rem, Rem, you wear it the yeah, nowadays, but she was a mission bay at the time, and we did a listing together, eyeing on Paratai Drive. So it's just crazy, fantastic, you know, and that was. Uh, me helping but being brought in but from there i was able to launch and fantastic. then had, had a sale behind me so it was pretty cool uh, she's an amazing lady kathy yeah I, in fact when i was uh
0: selling real estate i did a listing with uh, kathy as well
1: okay <laughs> okay <laughs> uh,
0: she was she was fantastic i distinctly remember this actually we were, we were sitting in the kitchen with this couple you know who were selling the property uh, we were having a, you know, they'd told us, you know, kind of given us an idea of what they wanted for the property, and and I was about to launch into this kind of um, story about price, and um, I remember Kathy actually kicked me under the table. <laughs> it's just like just sign the listing, you know. Rookie <laughs> error. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so I, I've got to say I, I learned a lot from yeah, Kathy,
1: yeah. and that was a, a really valuable experience. Yeah, yeah. No, no, she was she was great, and. It's great when you have those salespeople that are experienced that are happy to support and offer off offer experience and and uh you know, assist and take people in. And I, I think it's it's moments like that that you know, you sort of bring into yourself, you know, with yourself. And it was only two or three years in uh working out of Mission Bay that I just seemed to naturally fall towards assisting others that were in the branch that maybe newer than I was and and just you know helping them out or showing them a template that might work or how to find such and such uh, and I really learnt um, the importance of sharing and supporting mm-hmm. which is which is what I do to this day you know um, on both of those yeah it's interesting how it all comes together you know yeah or,
0: yeah no that's yeah. interesting so that's is that what kind of led for you into going into management? That pleasure you got out of helping other people?
1: Yeah, I, I think there are two things, and that is exactly one because mm-hmm. uh, I, I was always driven with sales, on seeing other people succeed, and my success would, attribute or be part of that. Mm-hmm. So I was never a leaderboard watcher, or where I, where I wasn't watching where I was in the branch as far as how many sales or, or rankings. I really was focused on the foundations and my clients and creating flag waivers and creating good stories with wrapped with a good reputation and people telling other people that they should use me because I had a good experience. Um, so I protected my reputation like it was just everything. So I just helping and supporting other people and, and how I, how I would, um, be comfortable with what I was doing. So I wasn't worried about the leaderboard. I was never, didn't really feel threatened. And it's like, well, this is my business and I'm doing this and I'm happy to help. And so that that just evolved into seeing the success of other people, my clients and then my colleagues. And it just seemed like a really nice fit. It, it was a way you could get to the end of a day and put your head on the pillow knowing you did a really good job and everyone had been taken care of. No one had been you know, for want of better terms, you know, been, uh I don't use the word ripped off, but like, you know, everyone's been, had a good experience and it's been fair for all. So absolutely that. Plus also I get a bit of a 10 year itch, uh, you know, and if I do something for a decade, I'm looking for new challenges, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's just within me, you know, and with the different things that I've done um, along the way, I start to get to that point And I think, well, where's my next challenge? And I like to keep moving forward and challenge myself and and evolving Um, as do people around me as do my kids you know the kids are getting older and they're changing and you're changing as a parent because you're evolving with them and I think it's healthy to keep moving moving forward and I just for me personally felt that I had plenty to offer and give as far as in the management side and um, I just love it with a passion so you just get me 100% and you know i know that when i'm driving to work you know i a smile on my face you know and you know that you really enjoy it and want to do it yeah, it's a great way to live you know and you're passionate about it so i'm i'm just stoked that i found something probably outside of the arts and broadcasting that i'm so passionate about because Fantastic. i think it's probably what was you know you wonder what are you going to end up doing
0: i love that philosophy i mean i think um, when i think back through my career and, um, you know, all of the people who have been so incredibly generous helping me. And, um, you know, I think that's if that's something that we can do, you know, as part of what we do as a business is create opportunities for people and help them to achieve what they're capable of achieving, I think uh, that's super uh,
1: rewarding. Mm. Yep, we're only here once. So, you know, uh, a glass half full approach I think is just so important. Yeah, and you're playing music uh, with some of your colleagues I, on occasion? On occasion, yes. So I mentioned Murray before, if uh, you're still with us from an hour ago when we were <laughs> talking, <laughs> we haven't nodded off. So uh, there is a, um, a little bit of a Barfoot in-house band, kind of, uh, called Soul Agents, and uh, I, I joined that about oh, over three years now and uh, Tim Rostridge from the Shore, I'll name and shame, and Tim Marne, who used to be in Blam 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 back in the day, and uh, Murray's Murray Smith, the auctioneer, is the lead vocalist, and we've done gigs for fundraising for Starship, plus, you know, the odd private gig here and there. And mm-hmm. It's very much uh, more in in the framework of going off and having a game of golf with your mates, It's as opposed to serious... Um, a serious profession. It's just about having fun and connecting and playing music. And, um, you know, it's off and on, it's not, not regular. And I like that, you know, and that's so different to back, you know, throughout my twenties where I was gigging three or four nights a week and it was a job. And, um,
0: I can attest to the fact that, uh, you know, even though it's just a kind of a fun thing for you, uh, it does sound great. (laughs) Um, I remember, was it last year? Might've been the year before. um, I brought my son along uh, to a gig that you guys were playing and, yep. uh, you know, he was just blown away. He, he's uh, a very keen musician, you okay. know, plays the uh, electric guitar and the saxophone. Yeah. So, yeah, he loved that. And I'm sure that, um, you know, he's probably uh, not going to be so impressed by all of the TV stuff. I'm not even sure he knows what a TV is, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hearing that you guys won the uh, Battle of the Bands, yeah, uh, yeah he'll be uh, very impressed with that. So, what is it that motivates you to come to work every day?
1: People. I think people, that's my first first response to that. They make me really enjoy my job. You know, often I hear people wanting to get into real estate and I ask them when I'm interviewing them if they're coming in and and what's their why and why do they do it? And they start telling me how they love houses or they tell Mm -hmm. me how much money they want to make. Mm -hmm. The ones that actually sit down and talk about that I really like helping people and I really like providing solutions and a service it's just music to my ears because without that you know um you don't get the other stuff uh and i'm kind of getting a little bit longer in the tooth now and i, I it's like you can choose your friends but you can't choose your neighbors and your and your family members mm-hmm. but in when you're running a branch you know you can be fortunate enough to bring in and attract people that you like and that you want to be with and provide a positive environment and you see people um, flourish and, and, and thrive. And, you know, it's always a work in progress and it takes time, but, you know, it's it's the people that I enjoy. If you think back over
0: your real estate career, what is it that you wish you'd known
1: when you were starting out? I don't think there's one thing. I think I think I knew it was going to be hard work because if, let's just say if I went into it thinking that, well, this is easy and then it wasn't, mm-hmm. I can probably answer that question by saying a high work ethic and hard work. But I kind of knew it would be hard. I was 32, 33, so I'd already experienced uh, a little bit, had a life prior to real estate. I learned things quickly along the way. Uh, so I think it was healthy to be to evolve, and I think you get better and better at something. So there's no way you could land in real estate knowing everything, you know, and and being fully equipped. You know, look, at the end of the day, you're only accountable to yourself, really, and if you're going to succeed in real estate, you're the only one that can do the phone calls. You're the only one that can, you know, put DLEs in letterboxes and, and drive those sorts of things. So you have to take ownership. And so I think I'd, I'd already figured that out, and so I came ready to ready to rumble, ready to go, but I still needed to learn, you know, the subtleties of real estate. But um, being driven and being a sort of person that likes to try and figure things out, I watched the top two or three people in the branch. I just paid attention to what they did. Didn't hassle them, didn't go and ask them for any silver bullets or anything, Mm -hmm. but I just watched what they did. And the common denominator for those three people was their work ethic. And they chose different things that they would specialize in. You know, one would be there at six o'clock at night, every night making an hour's worth of phone calls. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Veronica. I -hmm. watched that. You know, Dennis, I watched him put notepads and letterboxes, you know, and he would consistently do it. And five, six weeks later, the homeowner knew there was another notepad coming in from Dennis. Yeah. He was so consistent. And so I can, I don't even have to think about it. I know immediately what I was, who I was watching and what I was doing and then trying to, figure out, well, where where am I going to get traction? How am I going to figure out real estate? And it was about two and a half years in that the penny dropped for me. And my silver bullet moment was respecting the contacts that I would receive through my open homes and making friends from those people that came through my open homes. So I never, prior to that, they were really just people that came through an open home and are they interested in the house that I was selling? Mm -hmm. And that was it. And it was literally full stop, you know, ring them up. Are you interested in 29 Gifford? No. Okay. Thanks. See you later. And I felt embarrassed to ask them more. Uh, And um, I just had a quantum shift. It was literally, I can remember it. And I got my laptop, I got my notepad, I had my diary and Um, I had my open home books and I'd put myself in a little office, close the door, and I'd go make friends. So it wasn't always just ringing to see if they're interested in buying that house. How can I connect with each and every one of them? And if I wasn't in a great frame of mind, um, I wouldn't do it. I would make sure that I was ready to roll. You know, it's a bit like Showtime with the TV camera clicks on or these microphones turn on and (laughs) away we go, you know. And that completely changed my business because I then all of a sudden got business from business and wow. l- and learned and f- figured that out and just ran with it and and that put me into you know a new new league
0: and away I went. Was there a particular time that you found was best to make those phone calls?
1: Uh, yes, and I would watch what other people were doing, yep. and I would test the waters. And some people would say, you know, and everyone will have a different story as to what they think is best. So. Ultimately, you have to figure out what's best for you and what works with you, your personality, what you're trying to achieve. Because I would see people making calls on Sundays, um, getting in quick, or Monday morning. I wanted to let let Sunday and Monday rest through the day because if they called me, I knew they were keen on the property. So I was always trying to gather information. Right, right. So I knew. So probably, you know... Uh, against maybe what I might have been told by someone else or my manager. I felt that if they're going to ring me at 10 o'clock on a Monday and they want some information, then I know they're thinking about this property. So you're always arming yourself of, you know, information from people Mm -hmm. as to what your goal is. And my goal is to try and sell a vendor's home, best price. But then I would get into late on Monday or right at the end of the day on Monday, um, and I'd make calls. And so I'd, I'd do that. So I wouldn't let it hang too long because I'd want to have a vendor report out Tuesday or Wednesday at the latest. And that just, that seemed to work really well. And I'd mark the ones that I couldn't reach and I'd ring them the next day. And so many salespeople wouldn't do that. You'd see they'd have their first round of phoning and then they leave it, you know. And to me, I felt that those open home books were gold and I'd pay money for them. You know, it's just money you're leaving on the table, isn't it? 80% 80% of the people coming through your open home will do real estate in the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. And I, I became passionate about not letting them do it with anyone else. And you're not going to get them all, but, and while we're on this topic, I'm, you've lit my fuse, here, Stephen, <laughs> I'm away. Um, Cause I love it. It's great. Um, I, I would, my, what's your point of difference? And for me, you have to know your point of difference. And for me, I had skills from my past life that I could um, bring in. So for me, it was building and having a trade and doing up some homes and doing DIY and renovating. So I felt as though I had an angle that I could use where I could to try and add value to a homeowner. So if they say I'm renovating or doing the house up or thinking of selling in six months, um, I'd be leading and asking questions. Well, is there anything you need to be doing to the property prior to coming on the market, even if it's six months a year down the track? Oh, we've got to extend the deck. We're going to da-da-da. So then for me it was bingo. So now I'm going to make friends with this person and I'm going to see if I can add some value. Even get around and see if there's a way that I could make suggestions where they're not wasting money on things that won't be relevant to purchases when they sell their house. Fantastic. Finding a way in. And so that was that worked a treat. And it was all genuine stuff because you're actually adding value. You're not just making it up. I love that philosophy of you know providing value mm. front. You make friends, and then they're going, "Well, why would I go with anyone else?" Mm-hmm. Because you've you've made those connections. And the amount of times that I would go in to pitch for a, a listing, and I would see someone else's card or calendar or shopping list on uh, the bench. Yep, and you think, oh, you know, here I come, <laughs> coming in on a white horse." Um, but it's because you made a connection and that's good putting all that stuff out there. Mm -hmm. But if you don't really make a connection as well, then you may be missing a bit of a trick or if you're not attempting to. So, um, you know, that would give me some, just some quiet personal satisfaction. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what's something that people misunderstand about you? Okay. Yeah. My wife likes to talk to me about this. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm, for me, it needs to be black or white. For me, um, grey is no good. And when I was starting my career in selling real estate, we've got a manual, we've got a rule book, and, you know, I kind of have an expectation that, well, are the rules and we're all following it. Mm-hmm. And there were times that I might call, might head of back in the day, called someone on something that they're just doing that is just opposite to what the rule book says and, And I may have been taken to be someone that's maybe a bit, I don't know what the right word is. Maybe you can help me with what that word might be. Uh, Pedantic. (laughs) Stickler for the rules. Yeah, stickler. (laughs) Stickler to the rules. Um, It does pay now that I have to uh, potentially defend our cases with the REA. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) um, So it might end up being a good thing.
0: How do you define success and who comes to mind? when you think of success?
1: Seeing a positive outcome for all parties. I think when I look at success, um, it's not all about me, you know, at all. I'm really just, a matter of fact, when you have five children, a wife and a little dog, you are eighth in line, (laughs) you know. So it's not about me at all. I mean, I currently feel right now that I only exist to, you know, provide and support and help and keep my clan, you know, running and um, my branch and my people. So my success really is about um, other people and them being happy with their lot, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, and and it, it leaves me in a really good place. I'm, I don't know we're going deep here, but um, that, you know, that is, you know, I don't question that. It's, it's great because, I, again, I get to put my head on my pillow at night and, be comfortable and be happy. I uh-huh. love that. I love that answer. Yeah. Well, thank you. I had not prepared that. <laughs> you threw that one in there.
0: <laughs> if you could give your younger self, again, apologies, this is kind of a, a, yeah. a corny question, but if you could give your younger self one piece of
1: advice, uh, what would that be? Be nice to your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Treat people the way you want to be treated yourself. Okay, And I yeah. live. I live by that and whenever i have to stop and think how would i respond how would i react as a situation in my role now i have to put out fires um things happen sometimes people get unhappy and you're stepping in to try and help support find a solution resolution um, treat people the way that you would expect to be treated yourself and that for me i think i, I picked up on that really 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 early on in life and have just carried it through and that kept me safe through selling real estate so when i was a salesperson um never never once had a complaint that really got anywhere or, mm-hmm. you know or uh clean complete clean slate because i follow that so best practices and and treat people decently it's is a
0: real skill being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes Mm. and think about how mm. they would perceive something or how they would want to be treated.
1: Exactly. And that you you then would normally get clarity from that and you'd go, well, this is the right way forward or the right thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I,
0: you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to to come and have this conversation. I've had a blast. I've really enjoyed recording it um, and I uh, hope that uh, people enjoy
1: listening to it as well. Thanks, Stephen. And uh, good on you for doing this. I think this is neat. And I really look forward to... Uh, tuning in um, with the people that you're speaking to on an ongoing basis. And thanks for asking me. I'm uh, certainly flattered. Absolutely. Pleasure. All right. Thanks. This has
0: been the City of Sales podcast with your host, Stephen Barford. Thank you so much for joining me. Don't forget to subscribe so that the next episode comes straight to your phone. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you.